Praise God. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us as we celebrate the most important thing that's ever happened ever. And I'm not kidding. What we are celebrating this morning is not just a story that we try to pretend was historical. It's not just a story that we try to pretend was important because it's how our religion goes. This is actual history, and this is not just actual history. It is the focal point of history. The rise to power of Jesus Christ to become the King of kings and the Lord of lords through his death and his burial and his resurrection. That is what makes life worth living. That is what makes everything else that we believe or care about or know important. The whole thing is about this story that we are telling this morning. I'm so thankful for all the artists and all the cooks and everybody else who's made this celebration possible this morning. And we're going to celebrate the story together. But before we do, you might have already noticed if you're one of the people that likes the bulletin inserts, you might have noticed the two things. And, And one is it starts in a weird place that you wouldn't expect on Easter. And the second, it's got a lot of scriptures. Let me tell you about the scriptures first. My dream is that even though there's never enough time to walk through every single one of them verbatim, that you take these home and you read them and you re-engage with these ideas with God on your own and in your life groups and with your families and anywhere else. Uh, Every single thing you're going to hear this morning is rooted in Scripture. Uh, We're going to read some of it out loud, but some of it is you're just going to have to go back and read that, and I hope you do. But why are we starting with taking God's name in vain? That seems like a weird idea, but I promise you it's important this morning. Let me tell you why. In the Old Testament, in the Ten Commandments, one of them was, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Most modern translations say something more like, you may not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And the shallow interpretation, the really obvious, like, just easiest reading of it is this, don't misuse God's name. So if you are saying, oh God, or oh Lord, or oh my God, or Jesus Christ, or any other version of God's name as an exclamation of anger or fear or disappointment. I need you to know this morning that at least on the surface, here's what that verse is saying to you. God also, he not only forbids that, but he says, I will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses my name. But the more you study that concept, the more you study that that particular command and the way they understood it and the way it's reinterpreted in the New Testament and everything, it means something much deeper than that. It means taking on God's name for no good reason. To do something in vain means you do it pointlessly. You do it with no good result. There's There's nothing on the other side of it. And my dad pointed this out to to you several weeks ago, but I wanted to remind you and start here this morning because we're talking about us bowing down to the one who has the name that is above every other name. And we dare not take that name in vain, not just to say his name in inappropriate ways, but we dare not say, I am a follower of Christ and not actually follow him. We dare not say he is my king, he is my Lord, and he is not the central focus of our life. Kevin DeYoung writes that to know the name Yahweh is to know God himself. He talks about how when God passed before Moses, Moses prayed that God would reveal his glory to him. And God passed in front of him and shouted his own name. There's something about God's name that is his character, his identity, his responsibility. It's his his promises. It's the things he loves, the things he hates. When he says his name, 
His name means something. It means all of that put together. And when he gives Jesus that is a name that is above every other name, there's something more than just a title in that. There is everything there is to know and love about Jesus. All the power, all the authority, all the everything about him is in that name. And we dare not approach that likely. To take on someone's name is to accept an identity. When you get married and, and a woman changes her last name to match her husband's last name, that's not just a formality. That's all wrapped up in the dreams and the ideas and the passions and the, everything else that's making that new relationship, that new family happen. When you adopt a child and their old last name changes to be your last name, there's so many hopes and dreams and ideas and, and a whole new family, a whole new world waiting on the other side of that. It's not just changing their name on paper, getting a new ID to keep in your wallet. It's so much more. When you take on someone's name, you change their very identity. And it also, you change their responsibility. When you join a family, when you marry someone, if you get a new job and you have a new title or you get a promotion and it's a different title than you used to have at the same job, there's not just an identity change, but you have a responsibility change. Stuff has changed inside of who you are and it's also changed in what you're expected to do. All of this is wrapped up in the idea of taking on the name of God. And claiming that we follow the one who has the name that is above every other name. And how did he get there? How, did, how was he given this name, this authority, this power, this absolutely ultimate authority in all the universe? It's a wonderful story. And it's not just a wonderful story. It is the wonderful story. Any of you guys who like literature, and by literature I mean you like to read books that have great stories, you like to watch movies that have great stories, great TV shows that have great stories. If you like a good story and you know anything about what makes a good story a good story, if you've studied this, if you've gone to college, you have a degree in English or something, a lot of what I'm going to say this morning is very familiar to you. I'm not making this up. And also I highly recommend a book called Epic by John Eldridge. This guy has really opened my eyes in a lot of different directions, and I owe a lot of how I see this story now to him and the way he unpacks this story as the ultimate template story in his book, Epic. He also threads that through several others. But again, as we honor this story, I want you to see this morning that the reason we love the stories we love is because we were created to know this story. We were created to be attracted to this story. We were created to get this and to respond to it in a very specific way let's start this morning by reading aloud together we'll read paul the apostle paul's summary of this story in philippians 2 this morning we're going to be reading it from the passion translation if you would just read it straight off the screen with me um, i i memorized this in other versions i love every version of it i really like the wording of this and that's why i chose that this morning let's read this together he existed in the form of God, yet he gave no thought to seizing equality with God as his supreme prize. Instead, he emptied himself of his outward glory by reducing himself to the form of a lowly servant. He became human. He humbled himself and became vulnerable, choosing to be revealed as a man and was obedient. He was a perfect example, even in his death, a criminal's death 
by crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God exalted him and multiplied his greatness. He has now been given the greatest of all names. The authority of the name of Jesus causes every knee to bow in reverence. Everything and everyone will one day submit to this name in the heavenly realm, in the earthly realm, and in the demonic realm. And every tongue will proclaim in every language, Jesus Christ is Lord Yahweh, bringing glory and honor to God, his Father. It's a great story, isn't it? Let's look, look a little deeper. Every great story that we, we are drawn to, the ones that keep getting retold generation after generation, the ones that sell hundreds and millions of books and whole series of movies and people play with the toys, these stories that really, really grab us, they have a lot of things in common. What makes them a great story? And the reason is because they do point, I believe this with all my heart, they point us to this great story. But most of them start somewhere in the middle. They start somewhere in the middle of the story, and then you find out that there's a backstory as you go. You find out there was something that happened long, long ago. For example, how many have ever seen the movie Tangled? Tangled, I love that movie. It's about Rapunzel, the old fairy tale. Really fun, funny take on it. I really enjoy that. But when you first meet Rapunzel, she's living in a tower. She's not very happy. The only human being she has contact with is a very manipulative and mean person who claims to be her mother and is not and is taking advantage of her and it's just a bad, bad situation. But it doesn't take too long in the story that you realize, wait a second, there was a moment where things were pretty good. She actually had a mom and a dad who loved her. In fact, they were the king and queen of the land. There was a moment when, when she was a very small child, the whole kingdom, their family and everything about the kingdom was all about love and unity and purpose and dreams about the future and justice and equality and all the great things that make a good kingdom a great kingdom. That used to be the way it was. And that makes you want to get back to that even more, right? Well, guess what? The story of Jesus actually starts like that too. In the beginning, God created this world, and he created it perfect. In the beginning, the triune God created human beings in their image. They said, let us make humans in our image, male and female. The, the reason that we are equal but different and play different roles is because that's a picture of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They had identity. They had responsibility. They were in charge of the entire world and all of creation. And God said it is very good. The backstory of this story is so good, isn't it? And yet every great story, you, you, when you study literature, you find out that every story is not even, you can't call it a story unless there's some conflict. There's something the hero wants that doesn't have yet. There's something the bad guy wants that's direct, directly in conflict with what the hero wants. There's something wrong. There's something bad happening. And it's got to be fixed. Well, this story has that too. It wasn't very long. In Genesis 3, we find out that sin and death entered the world. And before long, brokenness had changed everything. But before we go there, let's, let's go back and let's look at John's take. One more time. I want to go back to John 1, verses 1 through 5. And I'd like you to read this with me as well. This is his take that shows us that Jesus himself was part of that backstory in a different form, not his physical form, but as the ultimate word of God. Jesus was part of that equation all the way back. Let's read that together. In the beginning, the word already existed. 
The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And it can't. But there is darkness. Another thing that makes a great story a great story is that the hero is usually unlikely. The person that ends up being the hero of the story has to have what they call a story arc. They don't start out where you think they're going to be. Okay, Luke Skywalker, you first meet him, he's a whiny dude that hangs out on a desert planet and fixes machines with his uncle. You don't expect him to be a Jedi Knight and save anything or anybody, right? Harry Potter, I, I don't want to dig up too many of that, but he starts out his story, he lives under the stairs in an abusive home. You with me? These stories that have gone everywhere, whether you like them or not, the ones that have captured people's hearts, you see this pattern in them. You see how this works. The unlike, we're drawn to the girl in the tower that lives alone with an evil fake mom who abuses her. How's that going to be? And, and a thief who joins, him, joins in with her. How does that work? Why are we drawn to unlikely heroes? Because our hero is unlikely. Think about it for a second. Jesus was a poor person. He lived, in a, he lived in a town called Nazareth that people made fun of and said nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. He's the promised Messiah, but he shows up after centuries of silence from God. No new prophets, nothing had happened for a really, 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 really long time. And Isaiah, the prophet who had prophesied about so many things about Jesus so accurately, hundreds of years before Jesus was physically born, he writes this. He said, Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised by many. I chose this picture of Jesus for this part of the story for, for one reason. Um, this, is, this is my favorite Jesus that's been put on film so far. And, and just one reason for that. He smiles all the time. Okay? And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but you look around any place ever, and if you're around somebody, I don't care how attractive you think they are in an objective sort of way. When you smile, when somebody really smiles, like from the depths of their soul smiles, everybody's beautiful. Have you ever noticed that? Everybody. And I, this is what I know. The Bible's clear that Jesus was not especially physically attractive. That's not what drew us to him. But I guarantee you that he smiled a lot. I guarantee you that he, they were drawn into the love and the joy and the peace that just kind of emanated out of him. But still, he's an unlikely hero. It's not what they were expecting. The Apostle John writes that he, he was God in tangible form. That was surprising. He writes that he was going to give us so much more than what we wanted. We just wanted like some sort of a rescue from, from a physical kingdom. And he was giving us so much more. In John words, John's own words, he says, We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. And he gave us the right to become children of God. It's an unlikely hero, but that's the kind we like. All great stories also have some sort of a hopeful fellowship. So the, the hero, he captures people's imaginations and hearts, and they not only want to follow him or her, but he, they, they, want to, they believe in what they stand for. They think this could actually help. 
And so there's a reason that, that Rapunzel doesn't do her stuff alone. She's got Flynn Rider. She's got the little chameleon. She's got the horse. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're, 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 yeah, she's got her. Yeah, that's right. Thank you, Claire. She's got her frying pan. Okay. There's a reason why Frodo has a whole fellowship built around him. There's a reason why this happens in almost every great story ever. Because God works. He designed us to work as teams. That's how it works. That's what he does. That's who we are. However, Jesus also built this team. And they not only became his team while he was here, they made it possible after he died and rose and ascended and commanded them to spread the news everywhere that we can be part of this team. Again, the Apostle John, he put it this way. I'm pretty sure you've heard this before. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And because of that, we get a chance to be part of this hopeful fellowship. We have a chance to be part of this team. And there's always a moment when this happens where all of us, in every great story, there's a moment where you, your heart really gets captured, right? You go, you know what? I think Luke and Han and Leia and all that, I think they can actually do this. I think this is going to work. We have everything we need. We even have robots, Right? I think, that, I think that Rapunzel and Flynn and the chameleon and the horse, I think they can do it. I, I think this will work. There's that moment. And for us as Christians, especially as we celebrate this big story, the big story that everything else hinges on in history, the real life story, we have Palm Sunday, right? That was the moment where not only his hopeful little fellowship, but everybody was saying, save us. You're the only one who can. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We recognize you. It's you. It's you. Woo! Celebrate. But then there's always another thing that happens in every great story. Some people technically call it the death of hope. And in this story, man, we waller in that for a long time. There's a whole weekend of that. So we're going to spend a few moments doing that this morning. We're going to walk through what happens here. Because what happens is some people in Jesus' hopeful fellowship actually betray him and abandon him. And honestly, in that moment, they felt just as betrayed and just as abandoned by him. Because he was not doing anything that they expected. In that moment, they had just been celebrating that whole week they'd been watching. They were like, this is it, this is it. And they're telling all their friends, you just watch, you just watch. Here it comes, here it comes. This is why I've been following this dude for three years. Watch, watch, watch. And he gets arrested and does nothing. We give Peter a lot of grief for denying Jesus. And I, I, deservedly so. That's not okay. That's terrible. But listen to the words he actually said. Because I sometimes wonder if maybe we get what he said wrong. I don't know. I'm just throwing this out as a question, not a statement. But what he actually said was, I don't know the man. I'm telling you, I don't know him. He didn't say I reject him necessarily. He said, I don't know him. And I don't know about you, but I've been through lots of times in my life where hope died. I've been through several seasons where I say, I do believe that Jesus is the Christ. I do believe that he's the ultimate authority. I do believe that he's good. I do believe he's powerful. I do believe, but you know what? That doesn't match up to what I'm seeing and experiencing right now. Maybe I don't actually know what I think I know. 
Maybe I don't actually know him. And I don't think I'm the only person who's ever gone through that. That's all of our story. And that's another reason why this story is, is so important because this is all of our story. We, we become part of it. We are called into this story. And I'm telling you, there's going to be several seasons in your life where all of these things happen over and over. And you're going to find the death of hope happen. And there's so much hope to be found in the rest of this. But again, we're still, we're, we just started the death part. So let's keep going. It's a hard story to tell, but this is it. Because not only did his friends abandon them and betray him and feel abandoned and betrayed, but now all of our heroes' enemies conspire and combine and start, they team up to fight him and to destroy him once and for all. They torture him. They make fun of him. They hurt him. They embarrass him. They spit on him. They humiliate him in every possible way they can think of. The suffering that Jesus went through before his crucifixion could have easily killed anyone else. A lesser man could have just died just from what they did to him there. Just what it did to his heart and his soul. Just what it did to his physical body. Just the suffering and embarrassment and torture alone. And yet he still does nothing. He endures it, but he doesn't fight back. And everybody's still not seeing any hope. And then they crucify him. And crucifixion is the most... It's the worst kind of death ever designed. The worst possible way to kill somebody. And I don't know if you know for sure how it works, but I want to show you something. Uh, there, crucifixion happened in several different ways. One was they would just tie them there. And when they just tied them there, they would hang there for days and days and days. That was its own kind of torture. Sometimes they would tie them there with ropes and also put in nails just for extra cruelty and also to help them die a little faster. But when they were really, really mad, then they would just use the nails. That's what they did to Jesus. But no matter how you're hanging on a cross, you've got your feet kind of sort of supporting you, not really, and you've got, you're hanging from your wrists. And I don't know if you've ever tried that. I hope not, but let me tell you something. It's impossible to breathe in that position. When you die on a cross, you die by suffocation. You just can't breathe anymore. To breathe, every breath, you have to pull yourself up from nails. Push yourself up on nails. You have to drag your already beaten and bruised and shredded back against the splinters of the cross just to get every extra breath. Every breath was extra torture. And yet Jesus kept this going for hours. Why? Because he still has stuff to say. Stuff like, hey, John, I need you to take care of my mom. Mom, this guy's going to take care of me. Every breath coming up, saying something. He had to say stuff like, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And every breath to say that is torture. Every single thing that he's saying is making it even worse. And it keeps going, and it keeps going. He's fighting for breath, but that seems to be the only thing he's fighting for. And his followers don't know what's going on. And I don't know about you, but I have been through times like this, and I think he, several of you probably are, where you're, you're thinking Jesus should have done something by now. You're thinking there's something else that needs to have happened at this point already. If he's who he says he is, come on. And yet there's this moment, the last moment on the cross is where Jesus says, his last big breath, his last thing, very loudly says, 
It is finished. And we know the end of the story, so we can go back and we go, we know that he means, I just won. I just won the victory. But that's not what it sounded like to them. they, They heard that the hope was totally died. And then they had to bury him. They had to take this broken and torn up body and wrap it and put the stuff on it and the, the cloth and take it and actually put it in a tomb. There was no doubt that he was dead. There was no doubt that this is the end in their minds. So maybe today is your terrible Friday. I don't know why they call it Good Friday. But maybe that today feels like that for you. Maybe it's your even worse Saturday. Or maybe it's the early morning and the miracles already happened, but you don't know it yet. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but the first thing that the, they ever saw that was the good news part of this story was not what they were expecting at all. They went to the tomb and they did not find what they were looking for. They were looking for his body. They were thinking, at least we can show some honor to him, show some respect in one last way. And they get there, and the tomb is open, and he's gone. It doesn't look like a victory, even in that moment. And the victory had already happened. And that's what I'm trying to tell you this morning. You know what? If you feel like God has abandoned you this morning, maybe you're some of the people that wrote on the butterflies last last week and said, God, save me from this. You're the only one who can. And you're like, hey, 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 it's been a whole week. Let me tell you something. Maybe the miracle's already happened and you just don't know. Or maybe it hasn't already happened, but it will because he is who he says he is. And he proved it in this moment. Because Paul tells us that while Jesus was dead, he actually descended into the lower earthly realm. Which is a poetic way of saying the, the place of the dead. And Peter tells us that while he was there, he actually preached to those who had died before that time. And they had one more chance. All the people that got slaughtered in the Old Testament, they got a chance to hear from Jesus himself. Now, I don't know about you, but that would have been a slam dunk kind of a revival. Do you know what I'm saying? Everybody comes forward. I can't picture anybody in the realm of the dead knowing to face eternal judgment. Jesus himself shows up and they go, no, I'm good. I'm pretty sure that was 100% revival. That happened. And then when he rose, when he rose, he didn't just rise from the dead. He rose to power. He ascended not just into the earthly realms, but he eventually, this started the last couple of days where he ascended into heaven and took that seat, got that name. And he was, he became, he earned the title King of Kings, Lord of Lords. The ultimate authority in all the universe. The name that is above every other name and there's only one way to respond to that that's humility and there are two specific things two specific images that that um, the bible gives us it says this is exactly how we're supposed to respond to our king and we're going to talk about that this morning and this is what i need you to do figure out how you're going to obey because we don't have any other options there's only two possible ways to respond to this kind of a king. There's only two possible ways that make any sense at all to respond to a God like this, to a king like this, to a Lord like this, to someone with that kind of power and authority. It's the only thing. Number one, you bow your knee. Number two, you proclaim that he is Lord. Here's what bowing your knee means. It means that you pledge allegiance. If you bow your knee to a king, you're saying, I pledge allegiance to you. From this point on, my identity is tied to you and your kingdom. 
You make the rules, not me. I will live and I will die for you and this kingdom. When you bow your knee to Jesus, you are saying, Jesus is everything from this point on. And I plead with you, bow your knee to him, but don't take his name in vain. Don't say you're doing it and not doing it. Second thing is we proclaim that he is Lord. We proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ rules. Jesus Christ is the king. Jesus is the one. We proclaim that. I need you to figure out how you're going to do that. Who are you going to tell about it? How are you going to celebrate Jesus as the ultimate authority, not only of your life, but in this world? How are you going to do that? There's a lot of different specific ways. In the next couple of weeks, if you notice, this is called part one. Next week is part two. We're going to look at some specific ways I believe God is calling all of us as individuals and as a church to respond. But this morning, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to be honest. Do not take his name in vain this morning. Don't lie, okay? But if you're willing, if you mean it, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to shout together. We, we don't sing, we, we sing a lot, we don't shout a lot. We see both in the Psalms, we see this. But here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to s- shout out that Jesus is Lord. Long live the King. Don't say it if you don't mean it. But if you do, I want you to mean it. And, 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 and I need you to do whatever else it means for you. Whatever you need to do to bow your knee or to proclaim Him as your Lord, you can do that while we continue to sing. You can come forward. You can stay where you are. Go to the back. You can come pray. You can pray with somebody next to you. You can physically bow down where you are. I don't care. But I want you to mean it. I want you to bow before the king this morning. Let's do that by standing and shouting. Say it with me. You ready? Jesus is Lord. Long live the king. Come on. Jesus is Lord. Long live the king. Come on. Jesus is Lord. Long live the King. One more time. Come on. Jesus is Lord. Long live the King.